My name's Jim. I haven't met you before. Welcome, especially those of you who are new. Um, I just want to dive right in today because we got a lot to talk about. And um, if you were here last week, you know the topic that we're actually tackling is kind of like swimming in shark-infested waters. Uh, we've been talking about God and politics as part of the series uh, 2020, Finding God in a Blurry World. And obviously this week was just, wow, what timing for this series. We didn't plan that out. Uh, but that's the reality of the world that we live in. And so we want to dive into that today. And I actually want to start today by telling you some of the feedback I got last week uh, from the talk. So I've never necessarily done that before. We'll start a sermon telling you about the feedback from last week, but let's try it. So let me give you a little feedback. Uh, 95% of the people that I heard from said, we are so appreciative that Ascent is actually addressing this, talk about it, not putting their head in the sand. This actually impacts how... Uh, the world is working around us, how Christians are perceived. Like, this is really important for us to talk about. So my favorite person was somebody who said to me that about three years ago, they left the church altogether because they were so frustrated with the political climate and they just didn't feel like uh, they didn't want to be a part of a church community anymore. And they uh, came back. They decided to come back to church after those three years off uh, a month ago and somehow ended up at Ascent. And, and this woman just told me in tears, like, I'm so grateful for what I found here. That made it worthwhile uh, to hear that. So we want to keep going on that. I did get a couple of pieces of feedback that were actually really constructive and helpful. One was around how, just language I use around gun ownership. That was a good piece of feedback. Uh, one piece of feedback I got was around, I guess I, guess I said Democrat Party at one point, and someone made sure that I understood it's the Democratic Party. And so uh, to that person, just even that language uh, would, would say that I was on the right. If I said Democrat Party, that's a sign that I'm, I'm, I'm on this side politically, I assure you. I did not know that. I'm going to claim naivete on that one. I did get some uh, feedback about the color of my shoes, which were red. Um, I, I got... I got feedback about my blue jeans. Uh, I got feedback about my green sweatshirt. Oh, he's part of the green party, you know. Uh, actually, those were, those were totally in jest, just, you know, humorous comments. But it did make me think, and I just kind of wanted to throw it out there, this is not a Trojan horse series, okay? I, I, the goal of this series is not to convert you to a donkey or an elephant. I just want to assure you and, and hear me, I actually don't care, okay? I, I don't. What I care about and what we talked about last week and what we talked about, what we're going to talk about this week is the idea, can you see your politics through the lens of Jesus' teaching? Can you see your politics through the lens of the kingdom of God? So many people are seeing their faith through the lens of their politics, just the opposite, and we're putting our faith in something that is small and temporal and going to die instead of putting our faith into Jesus' kingdom, which is going to last a long time. That's my motivation. If I convert you to anything, I hope you'll trust me. That's what I'm after. So I wore this outfit today. Okay. Uh, Here's some feedback I got that was also interesting. Uh, I had one person who was upset with me because I did not specifically call out Donald Trump and I did not specifically call out Republicans. I had one person who was really mad at me 
because I did not specifically call out Nancy Pelosi and specifically call out the Democrats. Here's what I'm going to do today. I am going to call someone out, but I am not going, I'm going to disappoint you again. I am not going to call out Republicans or Democrats. They are acting exactly as rulers have acted for thousands of years. They are acting in ways that you would absolutely expect. How do I consolidate power? How do I get my team to win? Kind of some of the tribal behavior that we're seeing is exactly what we should expect. What I want to call out today is the church's response to it. I want to call out today us. I want to call out the church in America. I want us to think deeply about how we should respond to what's happening around us. And specifically, what do we do? How do we act? What's the church called to? That's what I'm interested in talking about today. I want to start, and guys, we always want to start in, in the words of the Scripture we want to ground ourselves in what is the Bible saying to us about this? What are Jesus' words about it? What, what, is, what does Jesus care about the most? How could we be guided by his words and not something that's going to be a temporary thing? These, aren't, these words aren't going away. And so we want to look at this and we want to dive into this and see what is Jesus calling us to do. And specifically, guys, I want to start today with understanding Jesus' ethics, there's, I mean, ethics are an important thing for us to understand in this climate. What are Jesus' ethics? What did he care about? How did he demonstrate that? And, and I want to look at what is probably the height of Jesus' ethical teaching. If you ask people, scholars, pastors, all kinds of people, what, where's the very core of Jesus' ethics? If you wanted to summarize what Jesus thought about ethics and how we treat people and how we navigate ethical questions in the world, where would I go for that? I think a lot of people would tell you there is amazing material to draw from, but if you could only read one thing, read Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's a famous, famous sermon that Jesus gave called the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Beautiful words. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the very beginning of those words. So Matthew 5 starts with these words that Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down, which for a Jewish teacher that meant that he had authority. He sat down and he called his disciples, his followers to him, and they gathered around him and he began to teach them, saying this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus starts this sermon on the mount. Here's my mount. It's my mount. It's going to be more than a mount. Jesus starts this sermon on the mount, interestingly, not with who's at the top of the triangle. Jesus starts his sermon about ethics, not with the powerful. He starts just with the opposite. Jesus starts this all and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke says just, 
blessed are the poor. You see this two accounts. Which one is it? The answer is yes. It's both. Jesus may have said this twice. Jesus may have said this many times. Luke picked up on the fact that Jesus cared so much about the poor, the physically poor, those who are hurting, who need help. Matthew's picking up on the fact that people are poor in spirit, that they're emotionally wounded or hurt or apart from God. Whichever it is, Jesus starts with them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn or who are grieving. Blessed are the meek. Hey, what does that mean? Uh, it, that's a funny word. It doesn't mean much to us, but it matters. It's um, the, the literal way to think of that Greek word, meek, could kind of mean the little guy. Blessed are, is the little guy. Uh, think, think Captain America before the surgery or the experiment, okay? Come on, Marvel people. Are you in here? Did you watch the movie? So, yeah, he's all skinny. Blessed's the little guy. Blessed is, is, is um, really what he's saying is blessed are the powerless. And then blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who want so badly to see justice in the world, either for themselves or for someone else. And it's so powerful to them, it's like eating and drinking. You can't live without water. You can't live without food. These are people that are saying, I have to have it. I have to have, I've got to see this. Jesus is saying, blessed are these people, are the poor, the grieving, the powerless, those who need justice or are seeking justice. That's who God says blessed to. Now, we gotta ask ourselves the question, what does that mean? What does it mean to bless someone? What do you say when someone sneezes? Get that coronavirus out of here, is what I <laughs> say, okay? Well, sometimes we say, like, oh, bless you, bless you, which kind of means, you know, bless you, my friend, bless you. Don't, don't we often say bless you and it just doesn't really mean anything except for it's just kind of a nice word? That's not what blessing meant in the Bible. Because you see this in the scripture that to bless someone first meant to say, I'm actually with you. I, I'm on your side. Uh, you, you wanna know which side Jesus takes? This is whose side Jesus takes. I am with you. You could even change those words from Matthew 5, right? We could change that to say, I'm with the poor. I'm with those who mourn. I'm with the meek. I'm with the powerless. I'm with those who need justice, who are hungering, hunger, are hungry and seeking it, right? This is who Jesus says that he is with. But it even meant more than that. To bless someone meant to actually transfer something to them, to do. It, it, you know, you think back in the Old Testament when Isaac blessed Jacob. That was a big deal. He was saying, I'm giving over to you something. You are inheriting something. So much so that Jacob's brother, that was hard. Blessing means something. Blessing is like an officiant at a wedding who when they pronounce husband and wife, those aren't just words, they carry something, they change something, they do something. Blessing isn't just a nice way to you know, sit back. Blessing says I'm with you and I'm doing something for you. That's what Jesus is saying about these people. 
I bless you, and I'm with you, and I'm doing something for you, and my goodness, didn't he live his life out that way? You saw it lived out. Guys, these first four Beatitudes, they're called. These first four Beatitudes are all about how God is on the side of the helpless. God is on the side. God is with. God cares about the helpless. That's, that's who these four begin with, the helpless. Now, he doesn't just stop with the helpless. He moves into the next three. So I want you to see the next three now because, because God is on the side of someone else too. Look at these next three. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You show mercy to someone, you're active, you do, you care, you extend grace, you'll be given grace. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those people who are seeking after God's heart so much to understand the heart of God. Because when you do, you will see God. You'll actually be able to discern what God cares about. Blessed are the peacemakers. For someone who cares about peace between people, between families, between a, a, a mom and their son or daughter, between country and country, people who are working for peace, those are the people that Jesus says, you will be called children of God. That's no small thing in the kingdom. Guys, you see in this one, Jesus moves from, he's on the side of the helpless. Now, Jesus is saying, oh, and for those of you who help them, for those of you who come alongside the helpless, for those of you who show mercy, who are pure of heart, who are seeking peace, those of you who do this with your life, I'm with you too. I'm on your team too. That's, that's, that is whose side Jesus is on. And he starts his most famous ethical teaching, making it really clear, this is who I'm all about. He doesn't start up here with these people. He starts at the bottom and those people that help him. And the early church ran with that. The early church believed it. And they heard this word blessing and they understood what it meant. And they decided not just to make it words, they actually lived it out in a culture that was absolutely opposed to this message. I'm gonna give you a little, just think of this world. Think of living in this world for a second. So they, they lived in um, kind of Greek, Rome, Roman culture. The, the gods that, they served, that the Romans served, they were like all over the place, all kinds of different gods doing different things. Caesar was one of them. They, they worshiped all these different gods, but really here's what, here's what you've got to know. Those gods didn't care at all about people's ethics. They, did, they didn't care at all about how people treated each other. The gods that they worshiped could have cared less about these people. What those gods wanted was sacrifice. So as long as you're sacrificing, it'll rain. As long as you're sacrificing, you'll get great crops. As long as you're sacrificing, your business will go well. That was the mindset. And so in terms of how we treat one another, Christian, the first Christians lived in a world that could have cared less and it played itself out every day in how things transpired. Let, let, give you an example. If you are living in the first century and, and you're part of this kind of Roman way of thinking, 
and you, and you have a kid, and you actually aren't really interested in raising that kid. Either it was something you didn't want, or uh, a lot of cases, to be honest, it was a girl, and you didn't want that. What people would do is they would take that kid outside their little village walls. They'd take him out to the forest, this little baby infant, and they would just leave that kid out in the forest. And they would turn around and walk away. And they, it's called exposure. They would just leave their kids. I ran across this this week. This is so wild to me. This is the actual words written in 1 BC from someone who is writing his wife. Look at the letter he writes. I'm still in Alexandria, okay? I'm on a business trip, and I beg and plead with you to take care of our little child, and as soon as we receive wages, when I get my money, I'm gonna send it to you. In the meantime, if you give birth, uh, if it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, expose it. That was their, that was their ethical standing. No one thought twice about this. You didn't get arrested for this. The gods don't care. And then Jesus teaches this. And then Jesus lives this out. And this little band of people grab a hold of that. And they start going outside the village walls, out into the forest, finding those little abandoned girls, picking them up and taking them back into the village and raising them as their own. That's how the Christian church moved forward with Jesus' words. To bless means I'm with you and I'm gonna do something about it. And that's exactly what they did and they didn't stop at little babies either. When the plague came along and people were dying, Christians rushed in. When all the Romans, all these people are fleeing, Christians rushed in to help often at the cost of their own lives. Why? Because they were on the side of the powerless. Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, picked up on this, and he wrote some of the most amazing, ground-shaking words that have ever been put on paper. Look at what he wrote in Galatians 3. He said, with this new kingdom, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. Even that would have shocked people. For the people who were Jewish who said that the promises of God were given to us long ago and to only us, now, this message of the kingdom of God extends to anybody who's not Jewish as well. Whew, that's a tough one to swallow for their identity. But Paul says it, and he keeps going. He says this, there's no longer slave or free. For us, we go, well, of course there's not. Of course there's equality. Not the case back then. Guys, if you were a Roman and you grew up in a Roman household and you had money and you had, uh, you know, influence, I can almost guarantee you that was built on the backs literally of people that you had conquered, of slaves in your household, of people who served you. Your whole economic kind of outlook in life depended on this notion yeah, and, and, and if you're part of that culture, it's ringing in your ears. There's words, uh, words written by Aristotle, a famous philosopher. Aristotle said, you know what? There are some people from very birth who were born, and they were born for the purpose of serving, to be a slave. And there were some people from the, from the moment of their birth 
who were set aside to rule them. That's the culture that these early Christians find themselves in. And so Paul comes along and says, there's neither slave nor free. He's, guys, early Christians start to work against the notion of slavery to the point where one of the early church fathers just says, it is flat out sin. You have flat out moved away from the purpose of God, from the real God, the true God as lived out in who Jesus Christ demonstrated he is. And it starts to subvert the culture. It starts to change things. And then Paul drops this bomb. It's not only slave or free, it's male and female. There's no difference. There's no hierarchy. And so Christians start to work for the equality of women in a culture. Guys, Jesus Christ, one of the most liberating people you have ever, maybe the most liberating person for women in the history of the world. Christians start to change things. They start to subvert the culture that they're living in. They start to live out this calling of Jesus. While everybody else in the whole culture is working to kind of pacify these people up here, Jesus says, actually, the way the kingdom of God works, this might be how the kingdom works here on earth, But this is how the real kingdom works. This is how the kingdom of God works. He subverts it. He turns it upside down. He says those who are powerless, poor, grieving, those who need justice, those who help them, they're at the top. They're at the top. And he lives it out in everything he does. Guys, the kingdom of God is disruptive. It changes. It fights. It fights for these things that Jesus is talking about. And more than anything, it does. What does this have to do with our politics? What does this have to do today with our ethics? What does this have to do with perhaps, I think, a trap that the American church could be falling into, that we could look back at history and avoid? I'll tell you one thing the early church didn't do. For 300 years, as it changed the culture as it lived out the Jesus words, Jesus ethic, it didn't cozy up to the powers and the officials and Caesar. It did not do that. No. The way the early church changed the world was through sacrifice and generosity. They changed the world through those two things. Is that what the church in the United States today is being known for. I have to confess, as I, as I read the scripture, I look at the life of Jesus, I see them in the scripture not relying on force and authority to win over the hearts of people to God. What I see in the scripture are people who served generously and sacrificed and that's what won the day. I sometimes worry, friends, that the Christian church is starting to outsource its hopes onto elected officials. Instead of doing, instead of being who we've always been. One of the saddest things that happened to the early church was about 300 years into this incredible run, 
One of the Caesars went to bed one night, woke up and had a dream. He had a dream where he saw Jesus and a symbol of Jesus. And the next day, he decided that Christianity would now become the official religion of the empire. I'm not so sure that went well. I wonder today, as we think about the church's role in our culture, do we really want power? Do we really want force and authority? Or do we want to be known as the people who subversively work in the culture with generosity and sacrifice? And guys, I'm just telling you, you look at church history and you look at even what's happening in the world today with the church, the kingdom of God thrives in that setting, thrives. Where do you think the church is growing the most today? Is it in the U.S.? The answer is no. The church in the U.S., the kingdom of God in the U.S., people who would call themselves followers of Jesus in the U.S., not even keeping up with population growth. You want to know where it's growing the most? Places like this, where I read this article in the Houston Chronicle, China, officially atheist, could have more Christians than the U.S. by 2030. Okay, look at me. Am I saying I want to be in a communist country? and that I want to make the U.S. communist so that the kingdom of God thrives? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the Christian church thrives when we don't rely on force and authority, which often leads to power and corruption. Instead, we want to be people that are known no matter who's in charge. If we, if we put all our hopes into getting our person elected, you ever notice how that changes four years later? And how all the things we fight for and just, you know, it's got to happen. All that stuff gets reversed. I'm not saying it's not important. Vote. Care about issues. Speak out. Do. Absolutely. But the calling on the Christian church is never to become somebody's voting block. The call on the Christian church is always to act, always to bless, always to seek creative ways to care about the people that Jesus cares about. That's whose side he's on. Is that how the church is going to be known going forward? We've got an opportunity. I'm telling you. This church has an opportunity to do that in a part of the kingdom that I think is so, so important to do it in. And there are creative minds around this room that can help us serve in ways where the church, the people in this community goes, that's what it means to follow Jesus. In a blurry world. There's a church who I think is living this out that I learned about recently. I'll just give you a concrete example of what I think the kinds of things I hope that our church is like and is called to and wants to be like. Uh, a church in LA that they have a specific heart around homelessness. Uh, different churches, I think, you know, it's just interesting to see how different churches are given different gifts by God about what they care about. This, this particular church has a huge heart for homelessness. And so they started trying to understand, okay, what, um, what causes homelessness? How could we undermine? How could we subvert homelessness in some creative ways? And what they found out is that there's three major causes of homelessness. One is addiction. One is mental illness. But one is the inability to pay off medical debt. So 
this church goes, huh. You know, you think about it. There's some people that maybe uh, read a story about a woman who had cancer unexpectedly, wasn't, wasn't insured as much as she thought she was, ended up with these huge medical payments, isn't able to pay her mortgage anymore, people aren't able to pay their rent anymore, and they end up on the, out on the street. Because in some places of the country, this is not just one of the top three, it is the top reason people end up homeless. This, this church then in L.A. starts seeing it. How could we help? What could we do? It turns out that there's debt collection agencies that will take pennies on the dollar for medical debt if it's bundled all together. So in other words, they're saying, if you hand me a big chunk of cash, I will forgive a lot of medical debt because I know that I'm, the debtors know that they're not going to get anything anyway. So yeah, we'll take a big pile of cash, if it, and we'll, we'll, we'll dismiss a lot of debt if you'll give us a lot of money. This church goes to their congregation and says, hey, we believe in this. We want to do this. We think this is actually going to keep a lot of people off the street. It's going to keep a lot of people from being homeless. They ask for money, and the, the church gives $50,000, just like that, 50 grand. They go to this debt collection agency. They look through the people. They try to understand where they are. They try to make sure that their money is really going to people who need it the most. They give that $50,000. You guys know how much money that paid off? This is the article in the LA Times. Eagle Rock Church erases $5.3 million in medical debt for poor LA families. Incredible! <laughs> That's the creativity of the church. That's the creativity of people who go, I'm going to help the powerless. I'm going to help the poor. All these families right before Christmas, imagine this. They get a letter in the mail. They go and they open the letter, and on the letter it says, all your medical debt has been forgiven because of this church that you've never heard of before. That's the church. That's what we're called to you guys. The, the, the rulers are going to come in and out. It's going to be red and blue. For a while it'll be one, then it'll be the other. I'm not saying we don't get involved. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying that. I'm saying don't put your hope in that. Put your hope in this. Let's be the church that does. Let's be the church that blesses. Let's be the church when the rest of the world is doing this, we just keep going. We keep living that ethic that does, that seeks, that cares. I, I've been thinking so much about just even our future here and here's our church and we're trying to build this out. I, I'm so convinced it is so important that the attitude that we take with this is let's build what we need so that we can actually bless other people. I just, the words of Jesus ringing in my ears. <laughs> Jesus says, to whom much will be given, much will be expected. I think it's true that a church in Louisville, Colorado, like ours, the expectations are high on how we bless the poor, the grieving, the powerless, those who need justice. The expectations are high for that. We've gotta, we've gotta do it, guys. We have a chance to do something here that I think is so special. 
And we're called to it. We're called to think creatively. Would you help us do that? Now, some of, some of you are sitting there going, man, I, this all sounds great, but I don't have the power to raise 50 grand for medical debt relief. Like, what do I do? One of my favorite little sayings from a pastor that I love is just a comment that says, look, if you don't feel like you can change the world, do for the one what you wish you could do for the all. Just start with one. I just asked today, who's the one in your life? Maybe you're the one and you need help. But maybe right now you're in a position where you are the helper. Who's the one in your life? You can live out the call of Jesus just with the one. Because the church is called, I believe, wholeheartedly, to rise above the tribal warfare of our day, to be about a completely different kingdom. And when we do, there's one last promise that Jesus has for us. And this is how he ends the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And then he bookends it for yours is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to face a tough time with this call. If we really live this out, it's going to be unpopular at times. Right? We're going to, we're, we will be criticized. But if we're on this side, if we align ourselves with Jesus, man, is there any better area than that? That message is going to change the world, you guys. That message has already changed the world. Those early Christians changed the world because they understood that word blessing. They understood where Jesus' heart was. And I'll give you this quote on how important it is for us to do this, for us to figure this out together as a church. Look at the words of Andy Stanley here. He says, if we don't act, we will rob the world of the message that changed the world. God, we pray that we would be people that would live in the tradition, the history, the incredible past of the church, the church at its best that has served the world with sacrifice and generosity no matter who's in charge. The church at its best when it refuses force and authority the church at its best when it loves the poor and the hurting. Pray, God, that you would use our church to do that. We pray, God, that as we do, people would see Jesus clearly and find life. We pray, God, that we would be people that visit people in jail, and when we do, we visit you. We pray that we'd be people who bring the hurting a cup of water and we do that, we bring a cup of water to you. We pray that we would be people that would serve the sick and when we do, we do that for you. Those are your words. We wanna be those people, God. We wanna be the steady people of the kingdom of God. 
And God, we pray as we do that, as we love, that people would look and they would be able to sing these words that we're about to sing, that we love you, Lord. We love you, Lord, and we lift our voice to you. And we want to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.